Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about insidious songs and malevolent muses. I'm your host, Steve Taylor. And tonight, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Andrea Rose and special guest, singer-songwriter and multi-instrumental musician Violet Orlandi. If you enjoy Violet's performance tonight, you can find more of her and her music on her YouTube channel and on social media where you'll have the opportunity to hear her rock renditions of popular songs from a variety of genres, as well as her own original tunes. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is written by Arthur Blair Daniels in collaboration with Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's creator, Craig Groshek, and is voiced by special guest narrator, Violet Orlandi. In it, we'll meet a songwriter 
that finds inspiration in the strangest of places. But is their mysterious muse leading her to success or something far more sinister? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Siren Song. I woke up at 3 a.m. to someone singing through my window. Her voice sounded so close, just inches away from my open window. But when I peered out, I didn't see anyone there. I don't even remember opening my window, to be honest. All I remember is falling asleep in a warm, cozy bedroom. I'd had barely four hours of sleep last night in a long day of songwriting. Hello? I called out into the night. No reply. I try to make out the words. A few words caught my ear. Something about the true heart underneath, sung in a minor key wavering through the cold air. I finally closed the window and climbed back in bed. When I woke up two hours later, I drank about three cups of coffee and sat down at my desk to write. Unlike the day before, the words came easily to me. I began singing to myself. You waited all those years Underneath the stones and tears All alone, cold and still Until the day we find you well My pen scratched across the page. The lyrics came fast and swift to me, flowing out like blood. In just a few hours, I recorded the entire song and uploaded it to my channel with the name Underneath. I played it back to myself. The views and comments poured in at an astonishing rate. Best song I've heard in years. You got tons of talent, wrote one user. Another said, This song reminds me so much of some of my darkest days, but in a good way, great song. As I scrolled through, my pride swelling, I came upon a comment unlike the others. Have externet escution clanchet. What was that? Latin? It wasn't any language I recognized. I would have thought nothing of it, but then my eye caught on the user's name. Savannah Girl 125. That was one of my fans. She commented on every single one of my videos. Nice, typical stuff telling me I was super talented, I should release an album, and the like. Should never make a weird comment like this one. I shrugged and closed my laptop. Maybe her cat walked across the keyboard, I told myself. Of course, that made no sense. The comment wasn't random. It had spaces and words, even if they were nonsensical words. But I didn't think any more of it. Instead, I walked out the door to run some errands. When I got back an hour later and checked the video, I couldn't believe it. The video had almost 80,000 views in just a few hours. My excitement, however, was quickly deflated by the comments. There were more comments like Savannah Girls, dozens of them, all saying nonsense words. Some of them repeated the words in hers. I saw Jave quite a few times. Most were just single sentences but some were whole paragraphs of nonsense, filling up the screen. I copied some of the words and pasted them into a translation site, but when I clicked submit, the site said no language found. 
My thoughts were interrupted by my agent, Dan. Violet, I saw your video. Underneath, it's blowing up. Someone wants to buy the rights to it. Someone big. Are you ready? It's... Have you looked at the comments? No. Why? I sighed and paced the room, eyeing the laptop with fear. There are these weird comments all over the place. They look like they're in a different language or something. Trolls, then? No, I mean... Dozens of people are posting them, Dan. It's about half of all the comments on the video. And other people are replying to them with more nonsense language. Okay, well, that doesn't matter. You need to meet me for lunch so we can go over this deal, okay? Um, sure, okay. I walked into the cafe with a heavy heart. As an artist, you want to interact with your fans. As a female artist, this becomes scarier with all the creeps out there? What if someone was trying to scare me? What if a group of my fans had band together for the sole purpose of freaking me out? Violet! I turned around and froze. Dan was sitting at one of those booths by the window. He was smiling and waving, dressed in his usual gray t-shirt and ripped jeans. But there was something behind him. A dark, blurry shadow. It started at his shoulder and grew up toward his head dissipating into the air as if it were a cloud of smoke. But as he moved, as he bobbed his head, waved his hand, it moved with him. I sat down across from him, trembling. What's behind you? Dan glanced back, then turned towards me. Nothing. No, there's something behind you, like smoke or, or a shadow. I don't know what you're talking about. There's something behind you. There's something. I stopped. It was gone. Dan was staring at me, a concerned look on his face. The area behind him was perfectly clear and bright. No smoke, no shadow, no darkness. Never mind, I muttered. It must have been a trick of the light or my imagination. I was sleep deprived, after all. Too much work, too much coffee. Okay, can I finally tell you who wants to buy the song? Sure. Chained up, he squealed. Oh, wow. Come on, show more excitement. They're big in certain circles. This could be our big break. I guess. So what do you say? Finally, a glimmer of excitement spread through me. This could be my big break. The chance of a lifetime. My song being heard by millions of people. <sighs> okay. After I signed some paperwork Dan had printed off, I went home, turned on the TV, and promptly fell asleep on the sofa. A strange incident occurred just outside of Springfield this afternoon. My eyes fluttered open. I turned towards the TV. While driving home from work, motorist Jeff Olson saw a woman on the side of the road. He's here to tell us the story. A pale, middle-aged man flashed on screen. I was driving home from work when I saw an old woman just sitting in the yard behind the Catholic Church, St. Monica's, I think it's called. Anyway, I pulled over, got out of my car, and went over to her. I thought she might be, I don't know, hurt or something? I called out to her, asked if she needed any help. She didn't say anything, so I walked right up to her. As I got closer, I realized she was digging, just digging in the dirt with her bare hands. And the expression on her face, totally blank. Not looking at me no matter how much I try to get her attention. Just staring into space. 
So finally I tapped her on the shoulder, she turned around and grabbed me by the arm. She lunged at me and bit me, real hard, right here. The man held his right arm up. It was swaddled in bandages. I ran back towards the car. The woman, she started to chase me. Man, I haven't seen anything like it before. Was real mad. Rabbit almost. All the while shouting something in a different language, something I couldn't understand. But I got in my car and I... I turned the TV off. Shouting something in a different language. Like the comments on my song. Like Jave and those other weird words that even the translator couldn't pick up. No, it had to be a coincidence. That night, I couldn't fall asleep. I went online and checked my video again, now up to over half a million views. As I scroll through the comments, I noticed that most of them were in the strange, nonsensical language of the others. At 3 a.m., I decided to take a drive to calm my nerves. It was a freezing cold night. I drove down the small town roads, watching the small shops and trees roll by. Everything was closed at this hour, save for the quick check on the corner of Maple and Main Street. I turned the radio on and scrolled through the stations. Some pop hit, a high-tempo dance number, some song in French. I pressed the seek button over and over, until I heard my own voice. You waited all those years Underneath the stones and tears All alone, cold and still Until the day we find you well No, 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 I muttered. They stole my song! They stole it! In my anger, I sped right past the quick check and continued down Main Street. My headlights flashed over the general store, the pharmacy, and then St. Monica's. I froze. Several people were standing there. Standing there in the dark, at 3 a.m., in the patch of grass between the church and the cemetery. Only wearing pajamas, no coats, despite the freezing cold. Some of them were digging. Others were just standing there, blankly staring at the side of the church. As my headlights rolled over them, they didn't even turn towards me. As I got closer, I heard the chanting. I could hear it clearly through the car windows. Have externet excursion. Have externet excursion. I pulled out my cell phone. I needed to talk to Dan. I needed to tell him what was happening. How I thought it was all related to my song. The song I had just sold to an incredibly popular band. I dialed Dan's number. It rang once, then a few seconds later, a familiar noise came through the window. Dan's metallic ringtone. I looked up. There he was, standing near the edge of the crowd. I pulled over the side of the road and leaped out of the car. Dan! I yelled. Dan! He turned towards me, face still blank. Then slowly, the rest of them turned to look at me with their empty eyes. I turned around and ran back to my car. Then I drove home as fast as I could. Dan! Open up! There I was, knocking down Dan's door at 6 a.m. I hadn't gotten a wink of sleep after the drive. But I also didn't feel safe venturing out before dawn. Dan! After five minutes of constant shouting, thumps resonated from within the house. 
Dan swung the door open, hair rumpled, looking like he'd just woken up. Violet, what are you doing here? I saw you at the church. You were there with the worst of them. And what are you talking about? Around 3 a.m., you were standing in the church lawn. No, it wasn't. Dan's eyebrows furled in concern. Are you feeling okay, Violet? You look a bit pale and tired. He reached his hand out and touched my face. Are you worried about selling your song? I know it's scary putting creative work in the hands of other people, but I think they'll do a good job with it. I wasn't listening anymore. My eyes had fallen on Dan's hands. They were covered in dirt. He followed my gaze and looked down at his hands. What the hell? He said, staring at his hands. Then he ran over the sink and began washing them vigorously. I followed him inside. See? That, that's what I was saying. You were out there digging with the rest of them. And it's all because of me. You heard my song. Violet, you sound crazy. I didn't dig anything, okay? I just got out of bed and answered the door. Then where did the dirt come from? I don't know, Violet, okay? I don't know. I fell silent, watching the suds and dirt swirl together in the sink. He turned it off and wiped his hands vigorously on a towel. You should go. You're going to wake Margot. I stepped back. In all the years that Dan had been my agent, he never used such a harsh tone with me. Not even when I bungled that song for the perfume commercial. So I listened to him. I drove home, made coffee, and watched my view count slowly climb to one million. But at 1 a.m., I returned to his house. I parked across the street, turned off my lights, and waited. After more than an hour of freezing to death and eating two expired candy bars, the door creaked open. Thump, thump, thump. Then exited the house. With slow, ambling footsteps, he descended the porch steps. Then he made a sharp left and started down the street. I started the car and crawled down the road, headlights off. He walked for a while, then turned left onto Maple Ave. And that's when I saw it. A figure, walking several yards ahead of Dan. In the darkness, the silence, going the same direction. Then I noticed the cars, a few of them, driving silently down the street. Like me, they all had their headlights off. As I got closer to St. Monica's church, more people appeared. More cars appeared, all going the same direction towards the church. They didn't seem to notice me. Apparently, I blended in just fine. I glanced down at the clock. It was 2.58 a.m., and the church was just up ahead. When I pulled into the church parking lot, I slowly climbed out of the car. I hadn't planned to join them, but now that I was there, I felt the need to. I wanted to know what they were doing, why they were doing it after listening to my song. I walked through the crowd of people that had gathered on the lawn. They might as well have been marble statues. They stared blankly ahead, taking no notice of me. The ones closer to the center of the crowd had already dropped to their knees and started to dig. They had already made a good headway, a large ditch of broken grass about 10 feet in diameter lay in the center of the lawn. That's where I found Dan. 
He was clawing at the dirt frantically, sending clumps of it everywhere. Dan, are you okay? I asked him. I knew it was a bad idea to engage these people, but I needed to know. He didn't reply. Hey, Dan, I don't know what's wrong with you, but, but we need to get you home, okay? Still nothing. I leaned over and grabbed him by the arm. Come on, let's go home. You've had enough digging. Hot pain shut up my shoulders. Dan held me at my arm's length. He stared into my eyes with manic anger. The blank expression was long gone. A few of the other people turned to stare at us. He dragged me out of the crowd, past the lawn, to the border of the forest. Suddenly, I got the feeling he wasn't in a trance quite like the others were. Maybe he was okay. Maybe, maybe I'd woken him up. Dan, are you okay? What's going on? I asked. What, what's all this? We need to find what's underneath, he whispered. What are you talking about? We need to dig her out. Who? The one that sleeps under the earth for eternity. She has waited until now, for this moment, when we free her. She will rain down revenge and pain on our foes, exalt us into kings and queens. Dan, you're hurting me! His grip on my shoulders has suddenly become painfully tight. With just us, we will never burrow deep enough to reach her. But now, he trailed off into a wheezing laugh. In just a few days, the entire world will hear your song. I made sure of that when I contacted Chained Up. My heart dropped. The world spawned around me. You didn't actually write that song, by the way, he said. It came a little too easy, didn't it? You had to realize that. I... I don't know what you mean. I knew you had talent, widespread appeal. You were the perfect vessel, as it were. So after grooming you for years, I put a cassette player under your window, started playing the song to put it in your subconscious, make you think it was your own idea worked perfectly. He finally let go of me. I swayed dangerously close to the ground. Great job, Violet. Your best work yet. He shot me a smile before walking back towards the crowd. I collapsed into the cold, frozen grass, my heart pounding. What have I done? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today 
or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed Siren's Song, as written by Blair Daniels and performed by special guest narrator Violet Orlandi. If you enjoyed what you've just heard and would like to check out more of Violet and her extensive catalog of original music and covers, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Violet and you'll find yourself on her official website where you'll be able to access links to her social media, a playlist of her latest releases, and more. And don't forget to let Miss Orlandi know what you think of her work with a kind word in her YouTube comment section and a thumbs up and let her know that you heard about her on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to both of us. Thanks again, Miss Orlandi, for sharing your talents with us tonight. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you. An hour-long epic tale performed by Andrea Rose and written by Jasper DeWitt, author of the acclaimed horror fiction story, The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine, soon to be a feature-length motion picture produced by Ryan Reynolds and distributed via 20th Century Fox. In it, an aspiring pop star willing to do anything to get her big break gets her chance to shine. But at what cost? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you, Lucky Tears at Night. One, she wakes up. I was 19 when I first tried to kill myself. The moment will never leave me for as long as I live. It came at the end of a day marked simultaneously by exhaustion and by wild, chaotic abandon. A day when my body had already been ripped and ravaged, penetrated by hungry men in the dark back room of the club where I worked and then pierced by merciful needles offering Nepenthe to my hungry veins. The hungry and hot Los Angeles sky had glared down at me as I replaced yet another stained set of cheap sex store lingerie in my purse and finally left work, outfitted in the uniform of a human being, rather than a vessel for violent thrusts and empty promises. You know, baby, I know a record producer. Your face would look so good on camera. I know a place we can talk about a screen test nearby. I manage a few up-and-coming pop stars. I'll give you my card if you show me how bad you want it. I'd fallen for all of these overtures and more, at least once before now. They had been the constant soundtrack of my life ever since I had fled an angry mother's belt and a ravenous father's touch way back in Mississippi at the age of 16. Back then, my driver's license had seemed like my passport to a world of imagination, where the highway opened up and swallowed the memories of my broken past like so many miles of asphalt vanishing under the hood of my car. It took only until the night I got my license to think of running away. It took me only a week from then to work up the courage to actually do it. And when I finally did take that premature plunge into the real world and vanish from my parents' lives in their stolen pickup, I knew without thinking where my journey would end. I knew that I was going to California, the land where America's dreams come true, 
and I already understood intuitively just what dream I wanted to make into a reality. I would become a singer. It was the most precious aspiration of my young and wounded life. It had been with me since I first opened my mouth in the children's choir in the run-down rinky-dink architecture of a rural Mississippi church, and felt the girlishly fragile notes of my trilling soprano carry me into the arms of the Lord. The girlishness and fragility were long gone when I ran, of course, and my voice, while still soprano, no longer trilled. Now, it soared and danced and weaved tense and emotional as the coiled spring that was my sanity, my vocal cords thrumming with the same quivering ferocity as my beaten but unbroken soul. I knew, as all young and innocent artists know deep down, that if the world could only hear that sound, it would weep and smile and dance just as my own heart did. I was sure of it. It was my prayer every night that I slept by the side of the road. It was my promise, my salvation. But when I finally got to Los Angeles and sold my parents' truck, that dream ran aground on the hard reality of a city gorged on forgotten childish hopes. This was no choir girl's tidy fantasy. There were no auditions for stardom. The penance I earned from the truck was barely enough to keep me afloat for a few weeks. The employers who were willing to look past my underage status would not offer wages fit for a life in Mississippi, let alone the glitz-inflated price of life in one of America's most desirable cities. In retrospect, it's a miracle I didn't starve to death those first few weeks in Hollywood, or only hostels and homeless shelters offered me even the solace of a roof over my head. Still. By dint of saving and stealing what little I could find, I was able to finally purchase the one thing I needed to live as more than forgotten detritus that marred the city's cruel bright lights. A false ID, misplacing my age of birth by five years. With this, I was able to find a job that would sustain my physical needs, even as it violated my body and sent talons of fire across my heart. I stripped. And when I wasn't stripping, I saw my body in the back rooms. Or at least, I learned to sell it after being deceived one too many times by the men who used my dreams of singing to feed me fantasies and take their pleasure gratis. But the whispered offers of stardom were lies. The pretenses at connections to record companies dropped like so many cheap masks once I swallowed. The appreciative smiles become smug sneers. Dumb redneck whore, your throat's only good for sucking, not for singing. So I grew cold and hot, and no matter how convincing the men became or how seemingly sincere their professions of appreciation were, I always demanded my price. My plastic smile became an antimantin wall, which would only vanish when the credit card receipt was signed, or the dull green wads of cash vanished into my purse. They paid well, too. I was young. I was obliging. I was fresh meat that knew its place. The man always left with a smile, and most of them returned with fresh tributes in their wallets. The other girls envied and hated me for how many regulars my talent had secured. One or two even tried to rat me out to the club owners, but I brought in so much money 
and was so willing to oblige suspicious employers that their catty whispers fell on deaf ears. Those other bitches wish they were as good as you. One satisfied customer told me, Consider yourself lucky. Lucky. The word was like a branded iron pressed against my heart, searing the truth of my status as little more than well-paid cattle into my being. I felt the burn all that night. To make it vanish, I did my first hit of ecstasy. I was 17. I probably would have tried to kill myself that night if fate hadn't interceded in what seemed like kindness, but in retrospect seemed like the blackest cruelty. For as I walked home that night, strung out on the after effects of my contraband solace, I saw that a tiny little dive bar near me was advertising something I never would have thought to look for if it hadn't I presented to me right then. An open mac night, with a two drink minimum. Even with the financial hit that my night's earnings had taken from the ecstasy, I knew I could afford that. So, still unsteady on my feet and yet possessed of a burning resolve, I teetered into the bar. The sight of the cheap 72-key electric keyboard on the stage made the whiskey and vomit stains stink of that place seem like the smell of heavenly nectar and ambrosia. Without thinking, I ordered a whiskey sour and asked to be put on the list of people performing for the night. The bartender seemed a little unnerved at the milky desperation in my eyes, but ultimately, he agreed and put me on the list. Five places down from the last crossed out name. When my turn came up, I must have practically run to the stage. In fact, I think my almost feral demeanor scared the pianist who had just finished, because he scrambled off the stage, leaving his sheet music behind. I can't thank him enough. I hadn't brought my own sheet music. How could I, if I didn't even know that something like this existed? I suppose I had thought that maybe even in my intoxicated state. I could remember one or two of the hymns my mother had taught me back in my days at the apple of the choir director's eye. But when I stared at those simple few pages bearing the name of Piano Man by Billy Joel, I knew I wouldn't need to rely on my foggy memory. I knew the song from having danced to it more times than I could count. The cool progression was as familiar as my own heartbeat. With an old childlike confidence rising in my worn out body, I sat and swayed at the keyboard, and then brought my hands down, feeling the cheap imitation of a piano's resonant depths enter my body through that sacred union of flesh with case. And then, reading the sheet music with the agonizing need of a lost child that sees a sign to guide her home. I played. When the first few chords ended, I almost stopped, afraid my voice wouldn't come, but I didn't halt and my voice did rise, raspy at first, but then strong, and forceful, and mad, mad with grief, and frustrated hope, and unbounded, miserable need. The bitter, caustic, cathartic notes clanged from the piano and rang in my voice like a half-whispered, half-screened indictment of the life I have found that was not a life fit for any person with eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart to feel. I floated on the savage, roiling waters of those old familiar chords, coaxed into a stormy life by my fallen fingers and rising sob of a voice. Yet, I was in control, 
I felt the storm and wielded it to bring the phrases to life, but did not let it wash them on the discordant rocks. I sang and sang and sang, and when the song was over, I almost fell from the piano bench, clutching the keyboard like the last survivor of a shipwreck holds a precious floating shard of driftwood. For a moment, the room was silent, and I held my breath, afraid to drown in the terrible stillness. And then, from the darkness, the sweetest sound of all crashed down upon me. Applause. Deafening applause. Whistles, hollowed whoops, and wild clapping. Even in my altered state, I knew the sound came from a small number of people, and yet their diminished numbers made their wild adulation feel ten times as special. I have heard crowds and stadiums roar for an artist, yet I doubt that, person for person, an undifferentiated mass celebration like that could have matched the enthusiasm of that intimate moment of pure approval. My face was already glistening with tears, but in the center of that deluge of love, I felt myself break down. It was all I could do to stand and bow and choke out a whisper to thank you and to the microphone. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see the pianist who I displaced giving me a shell-shocked look, as if I'd just stolen a part of him without his noticing. I should have felt sorry, but in that moment, it was a pleasure, for once, to take something that someone else had thought was theirs. When I sat back at the bar and ordered my second whiskey sour, the bartender's look of doubt vanished. Instead, he whisked the drink together cheerfully and handed it to me without so much as a second thought. On the house, he said. Just promise you'll come back in and do that again next week. Then, after a moment's thought, I wish I could sing like that. You're lucky. And just like that. There, that word was again, and with it, the reminder of why I was there, strung out on ecstasy, vomited up my pain at a piano. In that moment, the sweet, warm afterglow of the applause felt as if it had turned to pitch in my veins. I took the proffered drink and looked the bartender dead in the eyes. I'll come back, I said softly. Please don't ever call me Lucky again. Looking puzzled, he nodded. Two, it's you they're all waiting for. That open mic kept me alive for the next two years. Two years of being fondled, of having my head held in place while men thrusted and moaned, of being pawed and poked and prodded by every expression that the male libido knows. With every exhausting, soul-killing day, I would count the minutes until I could sit on that stage again and pour out the week's horrors with whatever song I could think of to play. For the most part, it kept me off the drugs, too. Sheet music and my own cheap keyboard to practice with were much better investments than a few hours' respite from the thought of who and what I had become. The bartender, whose name I learned was Max, took to introducing me when I would get up to sing, as if I was some prize attraction that made the entire open mic night worth it. When I sang, I would sometimes sneak glances at him and see his face lit up with a kind of half-forgotten rapturous need for beauty 
that compelled me to sit at the bench and play every week. It was nice to see another soul so starved of what they wished to be, to know I wasn't alone. Once, when I had finished playing, Max even asked me out. I wish I could have said yes, but the touch of men, which descended on me every day without my desiring it, was something I could not have borne outside the hell where I bore it in exchange for my continued existence. Not even from a willingly chosen lover. Then, one night, when I was 19, Max told me something that would ultimately do more to wound me than all the fumbling advances and unasked for caresses I had endured up to that point. The bar was running out of money. It would close in just over a week. The open Max, my one respite from the horrors of my life as nothing but a painted object to be penetrated and then discarded, would come to an end the next Friday. The next night, after sinking weeks worth of savings into as many syringes worth of drugs as I could get, I went to the nearest pharmacy to my apartment and bought a straight razor that, cheap as it was, still held an edge deadly enough to kill. Then, with manifold poisons congealing in my body and years of trauma churning in my brain, I locked myself in my bathroom and ran a hot bath. The steam and warmth poured up into my punctured throat and my ravaged sex, and when I made the hot red lines stretching down my arms, the drugs in my system gave the pain of my life's release the choking, clutching, desperate aura of orgasm. Gasping with pleasure, I stared at the scarlet blossoms leaking into the water and felt my brain finally go numb, as hope and despair both leaked out of my eyes at once. Slowly, my eyelids fell, and then the door to my bathroom opened, and through it stepped a figure more terrible than any I could have imagined. It looked like a woman. Truth be told, it looked, well, it looked like, exactly like me, but its eyes were black, and the bile of the same color poured from them where a tear should have been. Its gums were punctured with needle-like fangs, fangs that dripped with blood somehow more viscous, hot, and dark than the soft flow of that which came from my arms. It was naked, which allowed me to see that there is no sex between its pale, gangly legs, only a gash, weeping pus and blood, which combined and coagulated into a sickly greenish-red film over the vicious wound. Its breasts were nippleless and sagged off its body like cancerous gross, too malignant to do anything but silently signify slow and agonizing death. To crown the horror, from behind its back stretched a pair of skeletal black feathered wings, and its feet ended not in toes, but in serrated claws that looked made not to kill, but only to torture with what must have been an unbreakable grasp. It squatted before me and smiled, and I knew in that instant of awful, unmitigated dread that it meant to hurt me in some way that I, even in my worst agonies, could not have begun to imagine. Even with the faintness from my blood loss, I knew that I had to get away, and so I tried, with every inch of strength I had, to pull myself away from the creature. 
but I only managed to cower half-heartedly against the back of the tub. The straight razor still clutched absurdly in my hand, a weapon without the will or strength to support its purpose. The creature gave a revolting sound, half burble, half squawk, an all-malicious laugh. Then, paying no heed to the straight razor, it seized one of my bleeding arms in one hand and reached up to its wings with the other. From one of the titanic black shapes, it pulled a long, cruelly pointed feather, and I watched in horror as a gush of rancid blood propelled the fang-like quill into its outstretched hand. Then, with another malign laugh, it brought the object down into my open bleeding wound, only cackling louder when I screamed from the abject anguish that its touch produced. Through the haze of pain, I could only barely make out the surreal wrongness of what happened next. As my blood flowed up into the long, wrought blackened object, turning it dark red centimeter by centimeter like a syringe being filled. The process only lasted a few moments, and yet I still shudder when I think of the ecstasy of horror that its slow progress produced in every ounce of my being. But eventually, it did end, and the creature drew the blood feather back from my arm. And seeming to lose interest in me, it released my arm, turned around, and busied itself about the floor. For what purpose, I couldn't imagine. Nevertheless, when it turned back around, I saw what it was holding, and goggled in incomprehension. A few sheets of pristine, perfectly lined sheet music paper were clutched in its talons. I had no time to wonder how or where it had gotten them, because in that moment, the creature that wore my face pulled the straight razor from my hand and thrust the bloody feather into it with business-like efficiency. Then, I placed the sheet music paper on the floor under my hand. I could only stare, the sheer panic blinded my mind to what it could possibly want me to do. It cocked its head at me, and I saw a flicker of impatience cross its face. We sat like that, regarding each other for a few moments, my hideous and demoniac mirror waiting for me to do something I could not understand. Then, from within my mind, I heard it. A throaty, poisonous, inhuman whisper with the guttural throttle of a dying engine. And it spoke a single word. Right. It was then that I understood the significance of the sheet music paper under my hand, and of the awful object it had placed in my fingers. It wasn't just a feather, it was a quill pen. A quill pen filled with my own blood. The thing wanted me to write music in my own blood. I stared at it in mute, immiserated terror for a second before trying to reply. Please. Please. Whatever you want. Let me go. The creature grabbed my arm roughly and shoved it against the paper. The awful, vibrating growl filled my head again. Right! I don't know how! I squealed in despair. I don't know how to write music. I've never even tried. Right! Or suffer! It was all I could do to tear my eyes away from the creature's filthy, malevolent gaze. Yet, somehow, I did it. With agonizingly slow movements, 
I drew the foul, blood-drenched pan and made for me up and placed it on the page, not knowing how I could even begin to think of a title, let alone notes. I needn't have worried, because when that hideous shaft touched the page, something happened that tore the final threads of my sanity loose. My hand began to move on its own. To this day, I'm not sure if it was the quill moving my hand, or if whatever abhorrent power the creature had was able to render my hand independent of my mind. Whatever the reason, I felt my hand move across that page of sheet music with a devilish speed that only mad genius could have compelled. As it moved, I felt myself begin to cry, and cry in a way that I had not cried since I had first felt my own father force his way into me before I could run away. I sobbed and screamed and gasped as years of persecuted silence pressed down upon my soul like a vice and squeezed every tear I had wanted to cry loose in a cataclysmic rush of grief. My hand was still moving on its own, and the harder I cried, the faster it moved, forming notes, chords, clefs, fortissimos, pianissimos, and inking lyrics under the implacable verses upon verses spawned by my inconsolable wretchedness. Once or twice, the quill seemed to run dry, and I felt blood from my still-open wound seep down into it, as if the two were joined by some eldritch bonding of a spiritual and physical woe. A sort of perverse euphoria born of transcendent suffering poured through my mind, and now, heedless of the hideous demon that still squatted before me, I bent over the tub, forcing the feelings that propelled my tears into the quill, so that it capered madly, and the music formed in mere seconds of harrowing ecstatic inspiration. How long my hand raced across those phantom sheets of music, I do not know, except that when it was over, my soul felt so sapped that I could only barely manage to form the final blocks and lines signifying the end of the song before I collapsed into the blissful quietude of unconsciousness. The interlude was mercifully dreamless, except for a few feverish moments of existential horror that passed as quickly as they came, with no images to accompany them. Only a single song, whose chords felt ripped from my body as surely as if they had been organs, and whose lyrics echoed with the irrevocable violations of everything most sacred in my soul. When I awoke, I found myself passed out in freezing cold water, still naked, with a pair of jagged but dry cuts in my arms, and my hand cramping as if every bone had been broken and then reset itself at once. A single black feather still reposed between my fingers, and beneath my hand were dozens of sheets of immaculately written music, which still glistened in unnerving scarlet on the fresh music paper it adorned. Trembling, I pulled myself from the tub and picked these up, my eyes sought reading the notes to a song that I cannot remember writing, but which seemed to express in perfect accents the feelings I had harbored through all these years of unrelenting misery. Staring at them, I could only wonder whether I had truly lost my mind, for my own handwriting was unmistakable, and yet the memories of the previous night seemed like the fantasy of a disturbed mind, which I would have dismissed as a bad dream if not for the raw red lines on my arms. Yet, staring at these, 
An inscrutable feeling of gratitude floated through my mind. I survived, I thought madly as I looked from arm to arm. I tried to kill myself and I survived. Jesus Christ, I'm so... I paused, knowing the next sentence without having even to think it. I'm so lucky. And then, for the first time in months, I laughed. Laughed like I'd lost the ability to cry, and now only knew how to express the sheer irrationality of the world I had woken up in with broken mirth. How can I describe that moment except to say that the laughter felt wrong, and yet felt good? Like my laughter was an insult directed at a cruel universe, and an obscene vulgarity that only I could understand or appreciate. It gave me an energy, the likes of which I had not felt in years, and I vaulted out of the tub, tossing the water off my skin with a violence I had not known was in me. I pulled one of the towels off the rack and scrubbed myself clean before doing my best to bandage the wounds in my arms. My phone was lit up with irate messages from my manager at the club when I found it, but I barely cared. He wouldn't fire me. The bastard knew I was the only reason some people came in. And besides, no one would pay for a girl who looked like she just tried to off herself the previous night. I texted him an unconvincing story about hitting my head in the shower and told him I need a few days to recover. I didn't bother to check his reply. Even if he did fire me, it suddenly didn't matter to me anymore, knowing that I'd lived despite an attempt to end my life. For years, I had been doing nothing but trying to survive, and yet what had that made me do but try to stop? I was better than a toy for sexually frustrated men. I had to be more. I needed to be more, and if I survived a suicide attempt, I had no excuse not to try. So, instead of going back to the rotten hellscape that had been my old life, I called my bosses the next day and told them I quit. Then I took the week off and did everything that I should have done the instant I turned 18, but I'd been too numb to think of. I looked at jobs at record labels. I sent in applications for waitressing jobs at restaurants that catered to the stars. I even searched around for clubs that had better reputations for taking care of their dancers. I wasn't going to go back. I had lived once, and now I had a taste for it. I would go on living, and if trying to do that killed me, then so be it. I had just enough savings to last a couple months, and if nothing materialized before then, I thought, I would find somewhere else to live that didn't prey on the desperation of America's dreamers. The only remnant of my own life that I planned to revisit was, of course, the final open mic night at Max's bar. If nothing else, I knew that I had to play the song that I had somehow spontaneously composed in the throes of what I now believed was a near-death hallucination. It was impossible at a logical level to believe that what I had seen was real, even though it felt like the most pure and nightmarishly real memory I had. What was more, the presence of the sheet music written in my own blood, and the mysterious black feather quill I had used to write it, seemed to speak to its reality. But given the number of drugs I'd been on, I thought those could have just as easily been items I procured before getting home, and I had only used them in the throes of intoxication. Perhaps even writing the music with my blood had forced me to retain consciousness long enough to take precautions against dying. It simply wasn't possible. After all, that what I'd witnessed was real. However, all these rationalizations notwithstanding, 
Ponomi was too unnerved by the presence of that blood-inscribed song to try practicing it before my debut performance. I read over it, of course, and from what little I knew about music, the chords and tune seemed to make sense. But, perhaps, superstition held me back from actually hearing it. Or, perhaps I was just too happy with the fact that I was free from a life that had nearly killed me to think much about it. By the time that open mic rolled around, in fact, even my arms had healed, leaving only a pair of thin red scars that spoke to the long-forgotten passing of a poison that I no longer allowed to be pumped into me with every passing day. 3. She's a star. Needless to say, I didn't stagger into that final open mic night half-drunk and miserable. Instead, I walked in with my head held high, the sheet music tucked nearly under one arm, completely sober, my eyes practically sparkling with relief and newfound pride. Max must have noticed something was different, because he pulled down the bottle of Johnny Walker Blue from the top shelf when I entered, and pulled a glass for me on the rocks. When I protested that I couldn't afford something so nice, he assured me it was on the house, since they were already going to be out of business. What's the occasion? I asked, grinning as I tilted the drink back. Whatever's got you looking like that, he said. I don't think I've ever seen you smile before now. I stuck out my tongue at him and he gave me an easy, joking smile that made me briefly ponder whether he'd always been so handsome, or if I simply had been too broken by my own misery to notice. I didn't have long to think about it. The open mic was starting, and a long procession of my old compatriots were standing up and giving their final, defiant performances in a space that had come to be an artistic home for so many of us lost, unfulfilled artists. As I watched the pianist, who I'd practically chased off the stage the first time I came launched into a dazzling performance of Elton John's Tiny Dancer, a stranger in the front row caught my eye. I knew, the instant I saw him, that this wasn't a man who belonged in a broken-down dive like this. Years of servicing men with varying levels of disposable income had taught me to tell the subtle differences between the rich and the powerfully rich. Little things like the cut of their shirt collars, the size and shape of their watches, and the relative shine of their shoes told me all I needed to know about a man the instant he walked into the club. If this man had ever frequented a club, he would have had every single girl hanging off him within minutes. He was tall, naturally tan, and thin in a way that spoke of being able to eat food that was both delicious and not fattening, while getting exercise in the most expensive and rarefied ways. A watch that looked like it would cost enough to feed a family of four gleamed on his wrist, and jacket that not only fit him, but accentuated his figure like a second skin, clung to his upper body. What a person like this could be doing in this bar was beyond me. Maybe he was the owner? Or a real estate investor looking at the space and considering whether to take it when it closed? Either way, I was intrigued enough to watch him out of the corner of my eye as the performances wound on. When it finally came time for me to take the stage. Max acted every bit the professional hype man 
and beckoned me up like a newly crowned queen. I blushed as I accepted the applause and took my accustomed seat at the keyboard, pulling out the mysterious blood song I had written in the throes of my greatest pain and placing it on the stand. My eyes flashed once more to the mysterious wealthy stranger in the front row, and I saw that he was watching me with a cold and distant interest at once totally unlike the leers I had endured while on the pole, and yet ten times as intimidating. I quickly averted my eyes and gave an involuntary shudder, focusing instead on the scarlet notes before me. Then, feeling a sudden and unmistakable urge to postpone actually playing it, I turned back to the audience and spoke. This is our last night here. Boos and whistles greeted this announcement, and because this space has meant so much to me and to so many of you, I thought I'd mix things up this time. The crowd gave a loud enthralled, ooh, and I saw the man in the front row roll his eyes impatiently. This time, I continued, feeling a hitch in my voice. I thought i play a song I wrote myself. A few gasps greeted this, followed by excited cheering, and the mysterious man's impatience vanished. He leaned forward, the subtle hunger in his eyes intensifying. I had to fight down another shudder. Well, I began. Um, here it goes. I turned back to the keyboard and the ghoulish red music on it. A small voice in my mind shrieked at me not to go on, but before I could let it stop me, I lowered my hands to the keys and started playing the first bar. No sooner had those first notes sounded than I knew with awful, thundering realization that anything, even my old life forbore a mediocre seance of the upper middle class, would have been preferable to letting myself play that song. I would have stopped right then, if I could, but as if the nightmare of my moment of suicide had never really ended. In that moment, I felt my hands begin to move across the keyboard of their own accord as the glistening red chords of the song before me formed under the demoniac playing of my possessed fingers. I was paralyzed but for my hands. I couldn't move. Couldn't stand. Couldn't run from the keyboard and the dark red verses that were reproducing themselves in awful, perfect rhythm using my body. With the sickening lurch in my stomach, I realized that rather than me using the keyboard to play this music, this music was using me to play it. And until it was over, there was nothing I could do. All this would have been bad enough if the song had only been confused noise. In fact, that would have been a mercy, because at least then I never would have been asked to play it again. But this was no chaotic scribbling by a drug-infested mind. This music was horrifically, miserably, achingly beautiful. Beautiful with the savage intensity of a sunrise that arrests your gaze before it immolates your eyes. Beautiful like diving to your death in a spectral, moonlit cove. 
beautiful like a tree that grows to tower in a clear blue sky, but whose roots force your corpse beneath the cold earth. Even before the piano ended and the words came in, I knew the song would be the only thing anyone would remember from this final, fateful night at poor Max's doomed bar. It was gorgeous and terrible, and it ripped all the barely healed wounds of my years of abjection open, for it was those wounds that had given it life and put its awful siren call on paper. Then the lyrics came. I will not write what the words were. Here, perhaps only in these pages, can I be free of them, yet I sang them in a voice that thundered with such poignant misery. I thought my throat had opened into hell itself. A great burning fire was coursing up my vocal cords, and the acrid notes of frustration, self-destruction, and despair were dancing in the smoke it left trailing of a chord after poisonous, stagnant, glorious chord. It was the music of venomous lies hissed in the moonless, claustrophobic night of a meaningless life of hopeless prayers often from the flames of a self-inflicted, self-conceived inferno, of blood flowering on stagnant water beneath the reddened handle of a misused straight razor. The tune dived and leaped, the beat pulsed with Saturnine malevolence, and the building crescendos echoed together with mad, chaotic, profane grandeur. It was all I could do to pray that the song would release me when the measures ended, when the pages were exhausted, when that ghastly melody of death ran out. I heard the piteous, gasping transcendence in my voice, and knew that I should have never been able to sing like this, and yet, that now, I had to. When the final chords crashed down, and the final belted malissimas howled from my throat, I practically jumped off the piano bench, transfixed with the realization of what I had just been forced to perform. It was only as I stood, gasping for air, and staring wide-eyed at the bloody pages before me, that I heard the din of the ecstatic, transported crowd watching me. I would not be surprised if a few hands bled during that applause. It was the sound of people who had heard something that had changed their lives and an enriched part of their soul that they didn't know were there. The profound, uncontrollable gratitude in that sound made me almost envy the poor fools who produced it. How could they really know what had been produced on that cheap little keyboard just now? As if on autopilot, I bowed to the applause as many times as it took before it subsided, and then stepped off the stage, still numb from what had just happened. But before I could reach Max at the bar and try to drink away the thought, a firm hand touched me on the shoulder. I turned around to see the mysterious rich stranger from the front row standing before me. The cold interest from before my song had vanished from his eyes. Now, he was regarding me with unrestrained, unmistakable hunger. We should talk, he said in a deep, portentous-sounding voice. I nodded, too shell-shocked to think straight. Okay, he chuckled. <laughs> Where are my manners? I apologize, he said, not sounding sorry for anything at all. My name's Walt, Walt Rathsteiner. He held out his hand, and I took it. 
Lacey, I muttered softly, my stripper name coming to my lips more readily than my real one. Walt Rastiner raised his eyebrows. Lacey, he said slowly, as if I was stupid. You don't know who I am, do you? No, he chuckled. <laughs> I'm a talent agent, he said, pulling out an impossibly crisp business card and handing it to me. You're a talent agent, if you'd like. I looked at the card. The logo for one of the biggest talent agencies in Los Angeles flashed back at me, along with the inscription, Walt Rastiner, senior agent. I cocked my head and stared up at him dubiously. What's a talent agent doing here? I asked, my usual suspicious question from the club coming out without meaning to. He laughed. Honestly, I don't know any more than you do. Sometimes I stop in one of these things on a whim, on the rare chance that there's someone with actual fucking talent who decides to show up. His hungry eyes bored into mine. Looks like tonight, someone did. Once again, my old reflexes got the better of me. I'm not going to suck your cock if that's what you're after, I said bluntly. Then, not wanting to offend him, I added, sorry. He gave me an incredulous look. That's not what I'm after, he said, his voice colder than it had been at first. And, anyway, usually girls offer to suck my dick before I offer to represent them. But, if you're not interested, my subconscious must have realized what was happening, because I grabbed his arm without thinking. No, I said quickly. I mean, yes, I am interested. Sorry, it's just great. He cut me off before I could finish. Then call my office at the number on that card tomorrow and we'll see about putting you out there. That song you sang tonight was one of the best compositions I've heard all year. As he turned and started to walk away, the weight of what he'd said hit me. And I, all of a sudden, I felt sick. You, you liked that song? I croaked after him, my mouth dry at the thought. He turned around and gave me another ravenous smile. Liked it? He asked. No. I didn't like it. I fucking loved it. And a lot of other people are gonna love it too once I get you in a recording studio. That said, I don't love your stage name. Lacey is too porno. No sense wrecking what you have by frightening away the housewives. You got some talent, kid. You're lucky. He snapped his fingers. Hey, maybe that's what we'll call you, he said. Lucky. Before I could protest, he walked out of the bar. As I watched him go, a horrible sense of foreboding crawled over my heart, and I walked to where Max was serving drinks. That was incredible lace, Max said as I sat down. One more whiskey sour for the road? Not in the house. You earned it with that performance. I nodded, the past half hour already swimming sickeningly in my mind. Meta make it a double. 
I wish I could say I never called Walt Rastiner. I wish I could say I tore up his business card and that damned sheet music with it. I wish I burned the remains of that music and prayed to Almighty God to save my soul from whatever demon had caught me in its snare the night I tried to die. I don't know if it would have worked. I doubt it. Come to think of it, I'm not sure the song would have let me try to destroy it. After all, I'd made myself its instrument the day I decided to put myself at the mercy of whatever the creature was that made me put my pain to paper. The song was the record of my abuse, of my trauma, of my misery. It was the brand on my soul that had made me try to end it all in the first place. And really, perhaps I knew that all along. Maybe that's why rather than try to burn the song that I turned my hands and throat into its own profane orchestra, I took it home with me. Maybe that's why, rather than avoid the cold, hungry eyes of Walter Rasteiner, who had heard the damned call of that horribly beautiful tune so clearly that he couldn't wait to inflict it on the world, I slept with his business card clasped close to my chest and desperately prayed that when I called him the next day, he turned out to be who he said he was. You know, of course, that my prayers were answered. Walt Rasteiner was every bit the high-powered agent he presented himself as. It took him only a week, plus a few phone calls and pulled strings to get me into the music studio, he promised, where I played and sang, this time with full complicity that unearthly melody of suffering that had ravaged my soul only seven nights ago. When I finished, Walt was grinning like a hungry lion, and the sound text in the recording booth was staring at me, open mouth, like a pair of dumb beach fish wash up and gasping under the blazing sun of my talent. I couldn't help smiling grimly at the sight. Watch and marvel, children. That's a star you're gawking at. Of course, the song was snapped up by a record company as soon as it was recorded, and Walt went to work negotiating my first record deal for sums of money so high that made my head spin just thinking about them. I should have been happy. I certainly pretended to be around Walt, but in reality, I was lost in a troubled and blurry daze, a dream that should have been happy, but from which I still desperately wanted to wake. After all, even if I did get the record deal I'd been promised, a horrible question was clawing at the back of my mind. The song that had gotten me my first big break was the result of a suicide attempt spurred on by dangerous amounts of drugs, and apparently, a malevolent supernatural force looking for an outlet. Bad enough that I wrote one such song. But what if they wanted me to produce an entire album of them? What would I do then? There was no way I could possibly live up to that. And if there was, I didn't want to know about it. 4. Why do these tears come at night? The night I signed my record deal should have felt like the culmination of years of suffering. The arrival on a track to eternal success carried on grooves forged in the crucible of my own hard-won determination. 
and stared. It was one of the worst of my life. No sooner was the ink dry on the titanic seven-figure deal than I knew I had given the record company the right to demand that I bear my soul on command for armies of screaming, wild strangers. The awful trade-off of the club, but magnified and made all the more grotesque by its heightened price and, therefore, the increased expectation of intimacy. From that moment on, the night passed in a smoke-filled, champagne-glazed days until at last I was transported back to my, now much nicer, apartment in one of many stretch limos that would, from that point on, be customary transportation for me. As I teetered through the double doors to my building and the cheery doorman chirped, Good evening, Miss Lucy. I tried to flash a smile at the momentary acknowledgement of my real human name, but even as I did, I can only feel a half-dead grimace form on my lips. From the falling of the doorman's face, I could tell that's what he saw, too. I'll get over this, I thought as I weaved into the elevator. I just need an aspirin, some water, and bed. And I'll feel better in the morning. But I didn't believe it. Because even as I thought those words, I could feel a black cloud of foreboding looming over my mind. I knew, though I did not know how, that something had passed between me and the universe the moment I had signed the deal. Something inked not in the muted accents of black ink on white, but in the same livid scarlet in which my monstrous and only original song was written. The hum of the elevator echoed in dissonant counterpoint with the rapid pace in my heart as the sinister fancy passed through me. Though, if I'd known how right the feeling was, I think my heart might have forced me into the merciful release of unconsciousness. My cocktail dress swayed form reduced briefly to nothing more than the corpse it should by rights have already been, with that groan and metal casket as its tomb. But the sensation, disconcerting though it was, did not yet bear the stamp of reality. And so, rather than pass out in the elevator from fried, I instead only pulled off my heels as the gleaming steel swam around me, and then groped my way out when it finally stopped at my floor. From there followed a sad, hazy progression to my new chamber's entrance only briefly halted by the uneven progress of my key into the lock, arrested as it was by my quivering hands. However, eventually I was able to twist the door open and finally step over the threshold. At first, I had to feel my way in the dark, with only the twinkling lights of the Los Angeles skyline as beacons. The moon glimmered spectrally against the glass of the expansive window at the rear of my apartment. And as soon as I looked past it to the balcony beyond, a mad urge to dash myself through that vast aperture, past the stone barrier between me and open air, and to the merciful kiss at the pavement beyond entered my mind. And perhaps I would have acted on it and saved myself the whole ordeal that followed. 
had not my hand touched the lap switch at that precise moment and bathed the room in the soft 50-watt glow of a hundred discreetly placed electric will-o'-wisps. With an errant slam at the door behind me, I tottered forward, half-walking, half-groping my way toward the sanctuary of my bedroom. Yet, as I walked, I became faintly aware of something lurking unseen. Behind me, something whose very presence screamed with a malice I could neither comprehend or anticipate. The sensation whipped across my mind, banishing the lingering traces of alcohol, and with the practiced nonchalance that only a woman who had made her living from male desire for years on end could muster, I idly placed my hand on the can of pepper spray concealed discreetly in my purse. The feeling of cunning, cruel observation intensified as I did so, and I waited, poised, against the wall of my apartment, waiting for the imagined assailant to make his move. Seconds passed in half-breathed silence, until the awareness grew so acute and intimate that its source could only have been standing behind me, and with an angry shriek, I brought the can up, spraying wildly in what I was sure was the leering face of an attacker. But the acrid smelling mist hit only empty air, and I was forced to cough and splutter, waving it urgently away from my own face before it could blind me. As soon as the rancid cloud was dispelled, I peered with rabbit-like franticness at where I imagined the aggressor would be, but my eyes found no sign of human or animal life. Eventually, they alighted on the most conspicuous object in the room, the silent, silver form of my electric keyboard, perched in the corner. And this is where the horror began, for no sooner had my vision connected with that instrument then I felt a searing flash of pain run up my right arm, and then the drip of something hot and wet on my bare foot. Shrieking, I brought my arm up to eye level and saw with nightmare acuteness that the long-faded scars of my suicide attempt had opened once again, as if the wounds were as fresh as they had been years ago and were spewing hot red plasma down my exposed flesh. Frantically, I ran back into my living room, fumbling in my purse desperately for my cell. But before I could find it, my hand touched something that I knew had not been in my purse before I walked into that room. Trembling, I drew the item out and saw that it was precisely what the unmistakable ridge softness against my fingers had indicated. A long, cruelly pointed, single black feather slowly drawing the blood from my arm down to its point. Right, said a familiar croaking blurb in my head. Or suffer. Transfixed with revulsion, I felt my eyes slowly forced to return to the keyboard in the center of the room, and I realized then what had drawn my eyes to it in the first place. The stand was littered with sheet music paper, paper that I knew had not been there until I walked in. Whatever had caught hold of me in the bathtub the night I had tried to sacrifice myself had me in its clutches again, and was trying to force me to satisfy its inscrutable sadism once more. But even if I was beginning to feel lightheaded from the bleeding, I wasn't a cowering, naked, abuse animal anymore. 
I was more, so much more, than I had been when I opened my veins at 19. I was a star now. Even if I had only become so through whatever hideous ritual had birthed my one terrible composition. And stars do not fall, even when hell calls them. No, I said firmly. I won't rat, and I'm used to suffering, so you'll just have to pick on someone else. I heard that unnatural laugh reverberate in my head again, and I felt sparks of the same white-hot pain run up the other arm. This time, the cut was more jagged, and blood spewed forth as if the invisible knife had tapped a geyser of liquid pain. My vision fogged, and I swayed on the spot. But I stood firm. You'll have to do better than that. I hissed through clenched teeth. There was a sickening crunch, a blinding flash of pain, and my ankle gave way. I collapsed onto the floor of my apartment as my one good leg buckled under the unexpected weight of my body. Blood was still pouring out of me, and I found myself wondering how I had not passed out if I'd already lost so much. Try again, fucker! I screamed exultantly, my brain too fogged with sensation to think clearly. One broken ankle isn't enough to make me sing. For a moment, there was silence, except for my ankle throbbing, and the squelching of blood coagulating on my defiled arms. Then, an infernally strong, invisible set of fingers closed around my throat forcing the air out from my lungs all at once. I gasped and felt something long, hard, horribly vile, and yet equally unseen force its way down my throat. I spluttered and gagged, but the hand of whatever it was held me in place. Dumb redneck whore, the hateful snarl in my head purred. Right or I'll fuck your voice out of you and send you back to sucking. Sometimes I think about those words and wonder if, had I the strength to say no, the monster would have left me in peace. But in that moment, I no longer felt like the ascendant star I had forced myself to become. In that moment, all I could think of were the moments when my voice had saved me. When I opened my mouth in a children's choir back home in Mississippi, and let the trillin' but insistent notes carry me into the arms of a loving god. When I'd swayed at the bench on my first open mic night in Los Angeles, and I pounded and sobbed out the melody of Piano Man, like a half-drowned castaway vomiting up the water in their lungs. Even when I'd first played through that gorgeous, awful conflagration of a song produced by some hellish combination of my own pain and the demonic power that held me now. Could I lose that and live? Could I suffer forever, not only without hope, but in utter, terrible, discordant silence? Perhaps a stronger, a better person than me could have done so. But I knew, with the fearful, sinking feeling of a slave feeling her collar snap shut, that I could not. The thing must have known that I knew it, because I felt the atrocious, unseen foreign object being withdrawn from my throat, 
and I gulped in air. There was a soft, warm tingling up one of my arms, and a cruelly sweet crack as my ankle reset itself. Resigned to fate, I stood and walked to the sheet music on the keyboard. Crushed by my own need, I lifted the quill to the paper. Owned and posed by my own pain, I let my hand dash across sheet after sheet, writing note after note, chord after chord, in sneering fortissimo after aching pianissimo, in the slick red touch of my own enslavement. I have been a prisoner to the infinitely cruel power that pours its compositions through my aching, unwilling, and yet unresisting limb. I wrote my first album, and my second, and my third, and when it strikes without warning, as it always does, I know better than to fight. Sometimes it leaves me in peace for a day. Other times, for a week. Sometimes even, for a whole year, only to slice open my wrist and pour its infernal music onto the page when I least expect it. I most dearly pray it has gone forever. To the outside, I'm sure it seems that I live an easy life. I lack nothing except companionship. For I dare not reveal my curse to another living soul, even though millions of Los Angeles' most desirable men throw themselves at my feet whenever I venture out in public. My melodies never fail to bring audiences to their feet with the same ecstatic bliss that my first Perdition Spawn song did. And I live now in the sort of opulent grandeur that the only world's most coveted songbirds can command. But, like all songbirds, I know that grandeur is only a cover for an invincible cage, and that though many say I want for nothing, I know that this is only true if you exclude the one thing I want most. To stop singing the melodies of the diabolical jailer that holds my soul. To once more hear the notes of my voice and know they are mine as they carry me out of the claws of the brutal emissary of hell. And once more into the arms of the god who has abandoned me. Night after night, the ache of that want drives me to tears. And morning after morning, I'm forced to conceal it with ever heavier quantities of makeup. I dare not try to kill myself again. For who knows what worse demon might find me before my eyes could close. And who knows if I will ever be allowed the mercy of death. Perhaps it's only my imagination, or simply a sick delusion in my own mind. But when I gaze on my haggard, red-eyed face every morning, I can only think that I have not aged a single day since the first night when I tried to take my life. And soon after that, another bleak fancy follows. What if I did take my life? And this is only the hell to which I was consigned. But no, I must go on. I must hope that death will find and deliver me, far off though that blissful horizon seems to grow every day. I must endure the punishments of the enslavement I face. Even now, I think that perhaps I have grown numb, for my tears come at night, almost on autopilot now, rather than from any newfound anguish. They only feel fresh on the days when I have to account for my life, 
And I'm when critics and fans ask me, with wide-eyed wonder, how I can go on producing hit after hit without a single misstep. And I'm forced to fumble for an answer that will not betray the insane, accursed truth that lurks ghoulishly behind my agonizing over. Where still is when I finish stammering out my lie, and my interlocutor's worshipful look only deepens. Wow, I say. Only wish what I could do what you do. Whoever picked your stage name knew what they were doing. You really are so very, very lucky. When the exasperated soul abandons, the body whence it rent itself away, minus consigns it to the seventh abyss. It falls into the forest, and no part is chosen for it, but where fortune hurls it. There, like a grain of spelt, it germinates. It springs a sapling in a forest tree. The harpies, feeding them upon its leaves, do pain, create, and for the pain, an outlet. Dante's Inferno, Canto 13. I hope you enjoyed Lucky, Tears at Night, as written by Jasper DeWitt and performed by Andrea Rose. Thank you for listening and for joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course... Subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. 
If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.